was I'm sure all the kids in the room know, Santa Claus isn't the only name he goes by. Santa Claus is also known as Kris Kringle, or in Latin America as Papa Noel, or St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was indeed a real live person, believe it or not. In fact, St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Mira in Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey in the 4th century. Nicholas's parents were wealthy, devout Christians, but they died in an epidemic, believe it or not, when Nicholas was, was young, leaving him a large inheritance. And throughout his life, especially in his ministry, Nicholas used his wealth to assist the needy, the sick, and the poor. He was renowned for his generosity and his love for children. But it wasn't all candy canes and sugar plums for Bishop Nicholas. Under the ruthless Roman emperor Diocletian, Nicholas was exiled and imprisoned for his faith in Christ. After his release from prison, Nicholas attended the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, one of the most historic and important events in the history of the church. It was there at Nicaea that the church fended off the heresy of a man named Arius, who taught that Jesus Christ wasn't co-equal with God as the divine son, but rather was a created being. It was at Nicaea that the church articulated the creed that we still confess today as even part of our church's statement of faith, that Jesus Christ is not a creature, as Arius said, that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, who for us humans and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, by the Virgin Mary, and was made man. And on it goes. I like to imagine Nicholas pulling up to Nicaea in a reindeer-pulled sleigh, hopping out in a red suit with white trim, ready to go about the work of defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's probably not how it happened. Okay. You know, our culture's imagination is so fixed on Santa and his elves and Rudolph and all the rest. And you know what? That's fine and good in its own place. I'm not being critical. But I'm guessing that St. Nicholas would want us to focus on the greatest story ever told. The story of God taking on human flesh to save his people from sin and death. So let's open our Bibles to that story in Luke chapter 2. It's on page 857 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible, please avail yourself of that Bible. Friends, since we're kind of parachuting into Luke 2 today, let me remind you of the context. Luke, at the beginning of of chapter 1, says that he compiled his gospel from eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry, and he's setting out to provide what he calls an orderly account for a man named Theophilus, likely a dignitary of of some sort. So in, in Luke 1, Luke compiles the preface, as it were, to the story of Jesus. Seemingly out of, out of nowhere, 400 years later after the last revelation from the Lord in the book of Malachi, the angel of the Lord appeared in the temple to an old priest named Zechariah to tell him that he and his barren wife Elizabeth would have a son in their old age. This son, the angel said, would be the very one that Malachi had prophesied and predicted would prepare the way for Israel's Messiah King. And then six months later, that same angel, Gabriel, 
appeared again, this time not in the temple, but in a backwater town called Nazareth in Galilee. And he didn't come to talk to a, a priest, but shockingly to Elizabeth's teenage cousin, Mary, a virgin whom Gabriel said would conceive a child, not through relations with a man, but through the agency of God himself, through the Holy Spirit. Gabriel told Mary that she was to name this miracle child Jesus, the Lord saves. Listen to what Gabriel told Mary about this child that she would give birth to. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Friends, there was no missing the point to Mary, was there? God had chosen Mary to birth the Messiah, the king promised from ancient times to bring God's people salvation. So when we arrive here at chapter 2, Elizabeth had already given birth to her child, whom they named John. And now in chapter 2, Luke records the details of Mary's delivery of her son. Let's read together Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. I was about to read verse 21, but that's not part of our text. Friends, I think the main idea of our text this morning, Luke 1 to 2, 1 to 20, is this. It's very simple and straightforward. The significance of the birth of Jesus Christ should fill our hearts with joy, worship, and a desire to make him known. 
The significance of the birth of Jesus Christ should fill our hearts with great joy, with worship and a desire to make him known. Three points this morning, reflecting, I think, the three sections of our text. First of all, in verse 1 to 7, we're going to see a sovereign decree. And then in verse, verses 8 to 14, which really interpret this whole passage of the significance of Jesus' birth, we're going to see a blaze of glory. It's kind of what I've, the term, the phrase to kind of summarize those verses. And then in verses 15 to 20, a fitting response. Friends, I think there's a danger in listening to a sermon from such a familiar passage of Scripture. Like I said, this is one of the most well-known portions of all the Scripture. I guess we could credit Charlie Brown's Christmas for that. So you might be tempted to put your listening on cruise control for the next 45 minutes or so and just kind of check out. Friend, don't take for granted how stunning, how rightly stunning the events surrounding Jesus' birth are. I pray that today, for you, whether it's for the first time or for the 20,000th time, your heart will rise spontaneously to rejoice in and worship the glory of God in the highest, who descended to the lowest to bring us his salvation. Let's look at these first seven verses and see the sovereign decree. Luke doesn't give us a lot of details about the birth of Jesus, does he? Sure, he tells us about Caesar's census, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But, you know, that detail is primarily to show us how Jesus' birth fulfilled ancient prophecy and highlighted his ancestry from David. But regarding the birth itself, there's really not a ton. Historians and scholars now say that Jesus Christ was born in the year 6 B.C. So, obviously, those who originally divided our dating system between B.C. and A.D. were off by six years. Christ was actually born six years before Christ. (laughs) Instead of focusing on the gritty details of his birth, of Jesus' birth, Luke's emphasis really is on what takes place in the fields outside Bethlehem on that first Christmas night when the host of heaven announced the arrival of the newborn king. But what do we know? What do we know? Well, verse 7 says that rather than being born in a palace, as one would expect of a rightful king, Mary's child was born in a peasant town in the lowliest of conditions. After giving birth to Jesus, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid her baby in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Can, can you imagine your reaction if this had happened to your child at Banner or Abrazo? I'm so sorry, sir, uh, ma'am. We have no more cribs available in the nursery. uh, But the good news is that we'll pull out, you know, the animal's feeding trough from the back. We'll fill it with some hay, and we'll make sure that your infant rests nice and comfortable in the nursery. It's an unthinkable situation for us. And none of our children are the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Because of the manger and the phrase, no room, Early translators of the English Bible assumed that there was simply no room for Jesus' family in the local inn, and the ESV kind of parroted that translation. But in reality, there's no mention in Luke's account of of, of donkeys or sheep looking over Mary's shoulder or of a grumpy innkeeper who turns them away. There is a specific Greek word that, that means inn, 
And Luke utilizes it later in his gospel when recording Jesus' parable about the good Samaritan who took an injured man that he had found and had mercy on to a local inn for care. But that's not the word he uses here in Luke 2.7. Here he uses another word, and this word is the word for guest room. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 22.11 when he sought a guest room in which to celebrate his final Passover meal with his disciples. What we now know as the Last Supper. Believe it or not, it seems likely, although we don't know for sure, that Jesus was born actually in a normal Bethlehem home. Archaeology has shown us that the, that the common Middle Eastern home had three basic parts. A main room in the center where the family lived and slept, and then a, then a guest room adjacent to that main center room, and then a space in, to the side or to the back, usually at a slightly lower level, where domestic animals lived. Often it was kind of separated by a half wall. So, I, friends, I hate to shatter your image of, of Jesus being born in a stable or in a cave. Really, the most likely scenario is this, that Jesus, or excuse me, that Joseph and Mary were staying with relatives in Bethlehem. And because of the census and the number of family members that were there, there was simply no room in the guest room that, that day. Jesus was likely born in the main living area of one of Joseph's relatives. And because there was no room for them, the family went and fetched the animal's feeding trough, the manger, from that adjacent space and placed baby Jesus in it. That's really all the details that we know about Jesus' birth. Friends, we certainly see in it a staggering humility that God the Son not only stooped to take on human frailty, but that He stooped to the lowest place, born in a peasant town with accommodations used for animals. But for now, I want to draw our attention to how it came about that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke writes in verse 1, that Jesus' birth happened in the days that the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus made a decree, a, a kingly edict, that all the world should be registered. Uh, this man, whom we know as Caesar Augustus, his original name was Octavian. He was the grandnephew and later adopted son of Julius Caesar himself, perhaps the most famous of all Rome's emperors. Thanks Shakespeare for that. Octavian became the sole leader of Rome in 27 BC, and he reigned all the way to 15 AD. At Augustus's death, the Roman Empire covered over 3 million square miles, more than the mainland of all of the USA, with a population of between 70 and 100 million people. Friends, this man, Caesar, was impressive. Because of his might and role in restoring Rome to glory, he took on the title Augustus. Caesar the Revered. He wanted to be thought of as a god. When Augustus visited Greek Asia in 21 BC, listen to this. His cult was apparently in full swing because we actually have archaeological inscriptions from that time that show that people hailed Caesar Augustus as savior, as bringer of good tidings. That sounds familiar in this text, doesn't it? as God, the Son of God, because He brought peace and happiness to mankind. And so as a sign of His might, what did Caesar do? He decreed that a census, census should be taken of the entire Roman, Roman Empire. 
It was through the results of the census that, that Rome enlisted their army and levied taxes on their citizens. So, so what Caesar is doing here is he is flexing the imperial muscles of Rome. He's seeking to accrue even more power to Rome and to himself. Friends, this move would have been repugnant to the Jews. Luke writes in verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Syria is the Roman province that Palestine was located in. Well, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about a census under Quirinius that took place in 86. And that census, friends, was so deeply unpopular that it provoked an uprising led by a man named Simon the Zealot. Maybe you've heard his name who tried to overthrow Rome's dominion. And so it seems what Luke is saying here in verse 2 is, this is no, this is the first registration. This is not the census, that, that famous census that caused the uprising, but another one a few years earlier. And so here you have the setting. Israel was a vassal state of the mighty Roman Empire, ruled by a self-absorbed man who loves to be revered, who orders a census, a registration of his empire. And back then, they didn't have a Roman postal service to get it done, did they? Didn't have the internet, right? So, verse 3 indicates that everyone had to travel to the city of their origin to obey this edict. Not so much where they were born, but their ancestral town. Okay, enter Joseph of Nazareth, right? Verse 4 says that this man complied with Caesar's decree. He traveled from Nazareth and Galilee in the north to Palestine, uh, uh, you know, in the north of Palestine to Judea in the south to the city of David. Well, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because Joseph was part of the ancestral line of the greatest king in Israel's history, the great King David. Friends, I think as you read this, the identity of this city is meant to surprise us in the text. Like, oh, whoa, what? Because look, Luke writes that Joseph went up to his hometown. Did you see that? Well, it's not talking about like a direction, like north. It's talking about topography, like Joseph went uphill to David's town. No, typically in the Old Testament, when God's people went up, where were they going? That's right. They were going up to Jerusalem. Ever heard of the Psalms of Ascent, right? People went up to worship. And guess what city is called the city of David in the Old Testament? Jerusalem. Zion. Several times in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is referred to as the city of the great king. David reigned from there. But in Luke 2, the city of David is not Jerusalem. Surprise! It's the little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that, that kind of no-name, unimportant city just south of Jerusalem? Like, what is there to do or see there? Not much. It's remarkably unimportant other than one fact. Bethlehem was the birthplace and the childhood home of King David. Bethlehem is where David was born. He lived there. It was in the fields of Bethlehem that David shepherded his sheep, as we read this morning. It was in Bethlehem where Samuel went to anoint David king over Israel. And it was to Bethlehem that Joseph went to be registered, along with Mary, his betrothed. Now, friends, we're getting to the point here. Although Luke never comes out and says it overtly, 
he writes this narrative in, in a way that I think we're supposed to see in motion the fulfilling of God's covenant with David and therefore with his people recorded in 2 Samuel 7. I think Luke kind of just works overtime to show this, right? Joseph traveled to the city of David because he was of the house and lineage of David, he writes. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promised David that a king would come from his royal line who would inherit David's throne and have a a dynasty and a kingdom that that would last forever. And of course, the Old Testament prophets picked up this expectation, didn't they? The expectation of the Davidic king and the salvation he would bring. People for centuries had looked forward to the Messiah's day. They looked forward to the day. They awaited the day that God's king would come and rule in might and justice and goodness and glory. Especially noteworthy for our story this morning is the prophet Micah, who hundreds of years, friends, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, foretold not only about the coming king, but prophesied that Bethlehem, the hometown of King David, would have a role to play in the Messiah's coming. Listen to the words of Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Friends, just like David was the unlikeliest choice to be the king over Israel, so the little town of Bethlehem, in many ways, is like the unlikeliest choice to be the birthplace of the greater David to come. But that's what Micah said it would be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says will happen. And now Luke shows how God put that prophecy in motion, how he fulfilled his word hundreds of years later. Friends, I think what, what Luke wants us to see here is what we saw on display over and over again when we studied the book of Genesis together, that God's providence ensures the success of God's promises. God's providence, his governance over his world ensures the success of his promises. What we see here at the beginning of Luke 2 is not a lucky coincidence, but the Lord actively governing history through the edict of the Roman Caesar to fulfill his redemptive plan. I I think there is something delightfully subversive about the way that Luke writes his account. Because here in Luke 2, the great Caesar Augustus is cast very much as a supporting actor. He won't win the Oscar for best leading male in a historical drama. The real focus in this section is on another line, the royal line of King David and the baby who becomes the king through his adopted dad, Joseph of Nazareth. Friends, do you see what's happening? How will the Messiah be born in Bethlehem if Joseph and Mary are are in Nazareth in the north? It's as if God says, well, let's just make the most powerful man in the world useful for my purposes. You know, friend, Caesar thought that the census fulfilled his decree when it actually was just a tool to fulfill God's sovereign decree. The mighty Caesar Augustus was like a pawn in the hand of the potentate of the universe. His census that, that, that seemed to just represent Rome's grandeur, it served the greatness of God's kingdom. 
As one theologian put it, Luke knows the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is putting Caesar in his place. A greater king has arrived. A few weeks ago, I saw a former pitcher for the Kansas City Royals at the coffee shop in Australia in our neighborhood. And being the Royals fan that I am, I kind of geeked out, admittedly. When I went home, I, I couldn't stop talking about it to Lindsay. You know what? Believe it or not, she wasn't all that impressed. She was glad for me, but eventually it was kind of like, why do you keep talking about this? Like, what is the big deal? He puts on his pants just like all of us, right? I think that's kind of what Luke is trying to show us here. Don't be too impressed with Augustus. Keep your eyes on the city of David and on the house and the family of David, because that's where the really important stuff is happening. Beloved, I think the Holy Spirit means for us to take a step back and, and simply to stand in awe that our God is so sovereign, he is so wise, that the most powerful man in the world is on his leash to do his bidding. Nothing's outside his control. God's active and at work even in the quarters of Rome to bring about his redemptive purposes. And friends, as you rejoice in such a sovereign God who brought about our salvation in this way, let your joy pivot to trust and reliance on this God who is firmly in control of your life and of your circumstances for his glory and your eternal good. One more takeaway from these first verses here in Luke 2. Friends, don't become too enamored with earthly power. Don't put your hopes in the glory of any earthly kingdom, including the U.S., don't let your joy fluctuate around who occupies the White House or what party controls Congress. Friends, don't tie your emotions in a knot about immoral laws or unjust court decisions. Yes, pray for those things. Work toward justice. But when the laws pass, when the decisions are made, take a step back and acknowledge the sovereign of the universe who directs the hearts of kings according to his infallible purpose. Friends, what we're meant to be impressed by in these first seven verses is not Caesar in his pomp and glory in Rome. What we're meant to be impressed by and what we're meant and called to do is to bow the knee in worship to the infant in the manger in Bethlehem. Let's look at verses 8 to 14 in our second point this morning, a blaze of glory. In many ways, these verses interpret what just happened in verse 7. What was the significance of the birth of Mary's child? Well, Luke tells us, thankfully, in these verses. The big takeaway, friends, is that the promise maker is the promise keeper. God kept his promise to bring salvation to his people through his Messiah King and therefore is worthy of all glory in the highest. Now, you might think that what is surprising about these verses is the appearance of whom? The angel. Have you, has an angel ever appeared to you? Okay. So it seems like, okay, that, that's surprising, right? That one angel appears in the fields of Bethlehem and then a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God for his salvation. Now, no doubt, the appearance of the angel shocked the shepherds. It terrified them. Here they were on the graveyard shift with their flock, 
when a warrior of light appeared, sent from the presence of God himself. The shepherds, no doubt, shook in their sandals a little bit, didn't they? Which is why the angel, most likely Gabriel, tells the shepherds, fear not, don't be afraid. Let me replace your great fear and trepidation with great joy. But the arrival of the angels, even though it surely shocked the shepherds, it should not surprise us as readers of this text. Why? Because Gabriel has already appeared twice in Luke in chapter 1. God announced the conception of Jesus through his angel, and now he announces the birth of Jesus through the angel. And by the way, just as a side note, a little sidebar here for you, angels completely disappear from the gospel record entirely until another massively important event in redemptive history. They appear once again to announce that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's not so much the presence of angels that should really surprise us here, given the significance of what's happening, but where and to whom the angels proclaim this good news that will be for all the people. Friends, if you or I were writing this story, like if we were scripting out what should happen here, would you have scripted shepherds to receive the good news of Jesus' birth? Think about what happens when a foreign dignitary or an ambassador from another country visits the United States. Who welcomes them? Where's their first stop? Yeah, it's often the White House where our president welcomes them in his Oval Office and celebrates them with a state dinner. The pomp and circumstance of the United States on full display. So you might expect God to send his angels to Caesar's palace, not in Las Vegas, in Rome. Or Herod's palace in Jerusalem to make known that that God's true king had arrived. But that is not where he sends his angel. And not only an angel appeared, right? Look at verse 9. Also what appeared was the glory of the Lord that shone around the shepherds. Friends, this is the very glory of God's presence. The last time we saw it in Israel's history is when God removed his glorious presence from the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. It was, it was a sign of judgment against his people for their sin. And so where would you expect then the reappearance of God's glory? Where would you expect it to show up? The temple. But that is not where the light of God's, God's glory appears to pierce the dark night of our sin and suffering. It's not within the halls of power or within the temple that God announces the Messiah's birth. It's in the fields of Bethlehem with lowly shepherds. The significance of this isn't lost on Luke. Throughout the Old Testament, God God calls himself the shepherd of his people who tenderly leads and strongly protects them. Israel's prototypical king, King David, shepherded his flock outside the town of Bethlehem. Earlier, I read about Bethlehem in Micah 5.2, but just two verses later in Micah 5.4, Micah prophesies this, And he, the Messiah, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And of course, when the Messiah comes, Jesus says what? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. So in some ways, it should not surprise us at all that God chose shepherds as the initial recipients of the angel's gospel proclamation. But from a human standpoint, it is stunning. 
The Lord didn't choose to announce the king's arrival to the elite among society. He didn't choose the rich. He didn't choose the powerful or the famous. Instead, he chose the profoundly ordinary. God chose to proclaim this gospel to blue-collar workers. He chose those with dirt in their fingernails. It's a living, breathing example of the lyrics of Mary's song in Luke 1.52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Friends, this truth alone should fill our hearts with joy this morning, shouldn't it? Because we live in a day when the world around us minimizes ordinary people. Do you know that? Our culture's push is that it's really not advisable in this day and age to be ordinary. Celebrity culture and social media teaches us to promote ourselves, right? We can't just stay ordinary. We need to be extraordinary. We need to live fabulous lives, and then we need to take a picture of it and let everybody know just how fabulous our lives are. And if they're not fabulous, well, at least fake it. We need to be Instagrammable. We need to look a certain way and carry ourselves in a certain way so that we get likes and retweets and gain followers. But this Christmas night teaches us a different story. God did not enter his world to save the extraordinary or the influential. He didn't come for those who think themselves to be something. Friends, Jesus came for the ordinary. He came to lift up the humble. He came to rescue the needy. I wonder how you think of yourself this morning. Maybe that's not how you think of yourself. Maybe you think, hey, I've really got something to offer. That salvation stuff, well, that's good for others. You know, those ordinary folk. Not for me. You can understand why others think they need to be saved. But not you. You have no need of salvation. Well, friend, if that's you, if you've kind of judged yourself to be good because of your, you know, your intellect, your money situation, right, your status in this world, the pleasure that you gain from it. Friends, if that's you, if you think, hey, you're good, God came to save those, the ordinary, the humble, well, you know what? In a way, you've judged things correctly. It is the ordinary and lowly that both need God's salvation and receive his salvation. God says it's to the humble that he directs his merciful gaze. If you think that you don't need help, well, then you're right. Jesus has no help for you. He didn't come to save the found, but the lost. He didn't come to affirm the first, but the last. He didn't come to treat the well, but to heal those who recognize, recognize themselves to be profoundly sick in their sin and suffering and rebellion against God. So, friend, I wonder, is it possible that you have perhaps judged your reality incorrectly and those other folks, you know, those ordinary folks, those humble folks, maybe they've actually judged reality correct? Friend, if you see yourself as, as not needing God's salvation, as just being okay, 
I encourage you, you ought to pray. You ought to pray that God would impress upon your soul your great need of him. Pray that God would reveal to you the depths of your sin and rebellion against him. Pray that if you've indeed judged yourself wrongly, that God would open the eyes of your heart and reveal to you your need and reveal to you the truth of the gospel. That your need is the same as all humanity's true need. It's so great, friends, that guess what God did? Our need is so great that God didn't stay up in heaven. Our need is so great, God stooped down into our world to save us. Because we had no ability to lift up ourselves to him. The proclamation of the angels shows us this reality. It's a true reality. God shows us what we truly need. Look at verse 10. The angels tell the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good, uh, yeah, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Friends, when the angel appeared to Zechariah and Mary, he told them what would happen. But here he proclaims to the shepherd what has happened. On that very day, maybe even in that very hour, the Savior of the world has pierced the darkness of this world with his light. You know, my, bas- my basketball coach in, in high school, he was an awesome coach. He taught me so much about the game of basketball. Really enjoyed playing for him. He had one major flaw. He had terrible breath, like so bad. I remember many a huddle during a game when coach was, you know, the tight huddle, you know, when coach is giving us instruction and barking out orders, you know, among a loud crowd. And I just tried to kind of covertly turn away from him so as not to catch a full whiff of what's coming out of his mouth. Now, Say I had given my coach a bottle of scope for Christmas. Friends, that would have been actually a a great gift for him, right? He needs that. But wouldn't it kind of have been good news, so to speak, and bad news all at the same time? It would have implied that coach had a problem and needed what only the mouthwash could provide. I didn't do that, by the way. I was smarter than that. I wanted playing time. But friends, so it is with God. God knew, he knows that our greatest problem, it's not poverty. That's a problem. It's not our greatest problem. It's not world hunger. It wasn't a lack of technology. Our greatest need wasn't anything outside of us. Our greatest problem is within. Our greatest problem is our sin and our utter inability to save ourselves from what is sin's just recompense, the wrath of a holy and good God. And because our greatest problem with sin, God sent us the Savior. Praise God, that's who Mary's baby was and is, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, friends. It's his title as king. Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah or anointed one. So Jesus, the Savior, is the long-awaited Messiah King. And notice that the angel doesn't just say that, that he is Christ of the Lord. He's not just sent by the Lord. 
He is the Savior, Christ the Lord. Already in Luke's gospel, he's mentioned the Lord over 20 times. And guess who he refers to each time? Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And now, in the arrival of baby Jesus, the angel wants us to understand that it's, it's not just that the Lord sent us a deliverer, but he has come down as our deliverer. Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And no wonder the angel said this is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God has come to us to bring us back to him through our Savior, Christ the Lord. I love how one commentator put it. He said, Jesus is the one needed. He's the Savior. He's the one promised. He's the Messiah. And he's the one able. He's the Lord. But there's one more thing the angel wants the shepherds to know. Look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Well, apparently the angels didn't expect the shepherds to believe on blind faith, did they? That's encouraging. They confirmed it by a visible sign. And what is the visible confirmation of the arrival of the Savior, the mighty King and God? You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You'll know this king not by his majestic entrance or his exalted home. You'll know this king expressly by his lowliness. You'll know him by his condescension. You'll find this king and God in the trough that holds the animal's food normally. You'll find him in a manger. Friend, never underestimate the humility of the Lord. Stooping into our broken world, into our brokenness and suffering. That, in my estimation, that would have been humility enough, right? That would have been enough to prove our Lord is humble if he had done just that. But he chose to go a step further. He chose to take on human flesh, to live as the second Adam who would obey where Adam failed and Israel failed and all of us failed. It would have been enough to prove his humility for God the Son to submit himself to the frailty of the human experience and take on our human flesh, but he went further still. Born as an infant lowly with no crib for a bed, the Lord of glory humbled himself to the lowest place. During his earthly ministry, Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He lived a life among the poor, lived a life of suffering. What started in the manger was the pattern of his life. Until the day Jesus the King willingly died a shameful and bloody death on the cross. So that we who deserve that death might be raised with him to life everlasting. Verse 14 indicates that the angelic herald, this single angel, he's kind of like an announcer, Right? It's like an announcer standing on stage in front of a, of a curtain before a play. Now, all of a sudden, the curtain rises, and suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. It's like joining this single warrior was the company of heaven's armies. They weren't regimented for war. They weren't marshaled together for hostility, but for the praise of God and the peace of God's people. 
the angels give glory to God who is in the highest. And they invite the shepherds and they invite all of us to do the same, don't they? We join them in singing Gloria in excelsis Deo. Why? Because the baby lion in the manger has come to bring peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. Friends, the great hope of God's people for all the ages was that the Messiah would bring God's shalom, His, his justice-filled peace and universal healing. But friends, this, this peace that the angels proclaim isn't just the, the ending of war and earthly hostility. That type of peace will come. But it wasn't going to be in Jesus' first advent. That day will come on his second coming. Well, the peace that God brought in the birth of Jesus goes far deeper than any earthly ceasefire. It's the ending of hostilities between men and their God. It's God in Christ reconciling sinners to make them sons and daughters. The older English translations rendered the final phrase there in verse 14, goodwill toward men. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. You've heard that. Well, unfortunately, that translation, although it's you know, deeply ingrained now in our public memory through the many Christmas carols and hymns, it's probably not the most accurate translation. Rather, God through the angels is proclaiming his peace on those to whom his favor rests. The Messiah King has come to bring God's peace with those whom God chooses to grace with that peace in accordance with his good pleasure. The sovereign grace of our God, even on that first Christmas night, sparkles. Friends, I know this idea might kind of feel naturally a little too narrow, a little too constricted. Shouldn't it be for every single person? Won't God's grace rest through Christ and bring a peace with every single person in the world? Oh, friends, it's a message that goes out to all. But here we see on display that special grace for God's own. It's for his elect. So you might be thinking, well, how do I know if I'm favored by God to receive his peace and so be reconciled to him? I'll tell you how you know. (laughs) You turn from your sin and you come to Jesus. That's how you know, right? You turn from your sin and you totally rely on King Jesus. And you confess with your mouth that he is the King and the Lord. You recognize that this infant in the manger lived his entire life in flawless trust and dependence and perfect obedience to the Father and to the law. He did all that the law called him to do. And he did that, why? Because you and I could not. He took our place in his life. And you come to Jesus and you believe not only that he took your place in his life, you believe that the death he died on the cross was in fact a death in your place. He was satisfying God's justice for you. And then you rely not just on his life, not just on his death, but you rely on his glorious resurrection from the dead as having conquered death and hell for you. Friend, if you turn from your sin and your self-sufficiency, I've got it all under control, and you rely fully on Jesus, guess what? God's peace, the grace of his favor rests upon you. He's called you to come to him. You'll not find in him raised weapons of justice, but open arms of mercy. 
Finally and quickly, in verses 15 to 20, we see a fitting response. Really, this point could have been the fitting responses, right? Because there are several in this passage. Verse 19 says that faith-filled Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She meditated on the significance of what God had done in the birth of her baby. Verse 18 says that those who heard the shepherd's report wondered at what they told them. They were amazed by it. It's not saving faith, but it's a good first step, isn't it? To be amazed by God's work. But I want to focus on the response of the shepherds themselves. Not only did the shepherds spring into action when the angels went away, right? They, they ran to Bethlehem to see what the Lord had done. But after they had confirmed that sign, after they had seen the baby in the major, what does verse 17 said they did? They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Friends, not only were the shepherds the recipients, kind of the first recipients of the good news, they became the first evangelists of it. Their joy at the good news spilled over into their telling others about that same great news. Verse 20 says that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Friend, let me encourage you, do not draw a false dichotomy between your worship and your evangelism. Don't draw a false dichotomy between your worship and your evangelism. They're vitally connected. In fact, you know who the best evangelists often are? Who are the best evangelists? Those who are enthralled with Jesus. Those who just can't help but talk about what Jesus has done for them. It's, it's Christians who can't get over the fact that he would stoop down so low and die for us and to save us. You know, friends, there's a lot that we want to do as elders to equip our church for evangelism. I mean, we've We've run classes on evangelism even since I've been here. We try, we give away books, don't we, right, about what is the gospel. And even last week, I think I get in the members meeting, I gave another way, another book on evangelism. Like we want to, us to be thinking about our church's corporate evangelism in your individual sharing of the gospel. We want to make sure that you can articulate the gospel accurately. You're equipped for this work. But you know what? Mere teaching is not contagious. You know what's contagious? You know what spreads from believer to believer in a church and then from believers to the lost? White-hot affection for Jesus Christ. The first step in evangelism is to cultivate a deep and abiding love for Him so that evangelism isn't a mere duty. It's the privilege and the, the outflow, the overflow of your joy in Christ. Perhaps this morning, amid the busyness of this Christmas and the frenetic event schedule and gift buying and all the rest, friends, you need to just call time out. Push pause and recalibrate your soul. Perhaps instead of doing something this afternoon in that kind of busy work realm, you just need to sit with your Bible open to Matthew 1 or Luke 1 and 2 or Matthew 1 or Hebrews 2 or Colossians 1 and 2. And you just need to marinate 
again in the grace of God to you in Christ, in his incarnation. Perhaps you need to pause the football game. And you just need to put that good incarnation theology in the Christmas hymns and carols. On your Spotify or in your CD player or whatever you do. This is not coming from me, the pastor, more me, the friend and brother. One of my favorite Christmas albums is Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God. I just played on loop like all December. It's basically a 40-minute walk from Moses to Jesus in song, and it culminates with the cross, Behold the Lamb of God. I, I know of no other music that's kind of just kindled my heart in the Christmas season like, like Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God. But whatever it is for you, it doesn't have to be that. Friends, spend time, whatever means you use, whether it's in the Word or a good Advent resource or good Christian music, let's together this week rekindle our collective wonder in the gift of grace that God gave to us on that first Christmas. And then as God infuses our soul with joy in Christ, let's then tell others about this Jesus, the Savior, our King, the Lord. Let's proclaim the good news that He he not only was born, but He lived and He died and He rose again. And someday He's returning to reign, not as a lowly baby, but as our conquering King. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you might, this morning, through such a familiar passage to us, use your word like kindling.